Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalms 119, verses 104 and 105, New King James Version. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, New King James Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time meteorologist. He keeps track of weather radar. We have found that recording during thunderstorms is not a good idea. Well, today, R.D., we think that it is a good idea to continue our discussion about truth and faith. In our first show, we talked about the nature of truth, and then we moved on to talking about what you call the tools of truth. Specifically, we said that the best way to sort between competing truth claims, like whether God really did create the heavens and earth, or the alternative that the universe popped into being out of nothingness, is to use logic, reason, and evidence. Then in our last show, we talked about the nature of faith. Could you give us a brief recap of what we said about the nature of faith? Absolutely. Last time we talked about the fact that faith is not some kind of a mystical force that can be mustered up or manipulated by human beings, in essence, out of their own internal resources. Faith is not a force that we can transform or somehow control just because we want to or we think that we can. Faith is also not about investing belief or trust in ideas or propositions that are not supported by competent reason or evidence. Well, those are some things that faith is not. What then comprises authentic biblical faith? Well, Christian theologians down through the centuries have seen authentic biblical faith as consisting of three components. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. So, every faith, any faith, has to have some kind of a content for that faith. And that content is generally sort of a set of propositions, concepts, ideas, And that set of concepts, propositions, or ideas, which constitutes the content of the faith, are propositions with which someone can agree or disagree for that matter. I mean, even false faiths have some kind of set of propositional statements which their adherents have decided apply to their lives. Now, sometimes those propositional statements may apply to ordinary, mundane matters, things that they see around them every day. And sometimes those propositional statements may have some application to the supernatural. They may be a set of supernatural convictions as opposed to being convictions that are just applicable to things that go on in their daily life. 
and we talked about the fact that people routinely exercise faith propositions even though they may possess only a limited understanding of those propositions. For instance, people routinely place their faith in an airplane and pilots to transport them from one place to another, even though they usually have a limited understanding about what keeps a plane in the air. Yet despite their limited understanding of aeronautics or concepts, that does not prevent them from behaving as if their belief is true. And that, essentially, is the exercise of faith. Exactly. So people not only have to have a certain amount of knowledge, the content of their faith, they also have to assent that that knowledge is true. In other words, they have to agree with that body of knowledge. Back to our famous airplane example, for a person to take an airplane trip, they not only have to be aware of certain ideas, they have to agree with those ideas. They have to agree with the idea that the airplane that they're going to get on board has been properly designed and built so that it's actually capable of getting off the ground and flying for a specified distance. I mean, who would get on an airplane that they believed had been designed to get off the ground but would only make it halfway to whatever their destination is? Somebody who's going to take an airplane trip has to agree that the pilot who's going to be in the front of that plane has been properly trained to operate the plane. They need to believe that that pilot has a genuine interest in getting them to their destination safely. So there's a set of ideas that even go into the most basic and simple decisions of something like taking an airplane trip. Just because someone were to study and even comprehend and agree with, say, aerodynamic principles, just agreeing or comprehending aerodynamic principles never moved anybody anywhere. People had to agree that those principles were true. They had to be willing to say, yes, having understood those principles, I agree that those principles are in fact true. But we also pointed out last time that just possessing knowledge and agreeing with the validity of that knowledge is not enough for genuine faith. The final component of faith is trust. We cited the example that the Apostle James cites in James 2.19, where James notes that even demons are aware that God exists and agrees with that awareness. But that awareness causes the demons to shudder. Knowledge and agreement of God's existence give demons no comfort because in the distant past they were unwilling to place their trust in God. Whereas the knowledge and agreement of God's existence gives Christians profound comfort because we are willing to place our trust in Him to provide for us, protect us, save us from our sins, and one day take us to heaven. Precisely. Trust is the final component of real biblical faith. So, just to summarize in a broad brush, biblical faith is not gullibility or credulity. We don't believe a claim just because someone repeats it. And biblical faith, authentic biblical faith, is also not presumption. That is, we don't believe that just because we call ourselves Christians, God is somehow going to reorganize the universe just to make sure that we always get what we want. Now, we do believe that God will supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus because God Himself made that specific promise in Philippians 4.19. God has given us a very specific promise that He will provide for our needs. But providing for our needs is a far cry different from just saying that God will satisfy any and every inclination that happens to cross our minds. And so it's important to always go back to the basic principle. Biblical faith is grounded in and supported by logic, reason, and evidence. Right. 
And our listeners may recognize when you say that authentic Christian faith is grounded in logic, reason, and evidence, you are directly tying authentic biblical faith to what you have called the tools of truth. So, let's talk a little bit more about what is the relationship between truth and faith. Well, simply put, real, authentic biblical faith is built upon the truth. Truth is the foundation of our faith. Just to reemphasize that, truth must form the foundation for an authentic, reasonable biblical faith. If we don't have truth as the foundation for our faith, then we really are just taking a blind leap into a deep abyss and we have no idea where we're going to land. And that's a very simple concept and statement, but it really has profound implications, doesn't it? Yes. The implications of that simple concept literally have eternal implications. What you mean is that if the content of the Christian faith isn't true, then that faith wouldn't do them or anyone any lasting good. Christianity stakes its entire existence and validity on truth. And truth is that which corresponds to reality. Absolutely right. And that link between faith and truth is seen over and over and over again in the Bible. The Bible never asks anyone to believe anything, even the seemingly most outlandish propositions, such as a man, Jesus, rising from the dead, without offering evidence to support that proposition. I don't think that this is a concept which is widely understood, or at least widely discussed today. Can you give us a couple of examples of what you're thinking about? Well, let's take a look at the Apostle Paul's defense of Jesus' resurrection to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Ah, that's a good one. The God's Word translation makes your point very clearly. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Quote, I pass on to you the most important points of the doctrine that I have received. Christ died to take away our sins as the scriptures predicted. He was placed in a tomb. He was brought back to life on the third day, as the scriptures predicted. He appeared to Peter. Next, he appeared to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time. Most of those people are still living, but some have died. Next, he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he also appeared to me. Unquote. Apparently, some of the believers in Corinth are like the man who asked Jesus to remove a demonic spirit from his son. When Jesus asked the man if he believed that Jesus could do it, the man replied, I believe, but help my unbelief. Mark 9:24. Yes. So, apparently, some of the believers in Corinth were having a hard time with the concept of the resurrection. But notice that in that section, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, While Paul firmly corrects the Corinthians' misconception about the resurrection, Paul does not just say to the Corinthians, Oh, just get over your doubts. Paul, even though he's absolutely firm about the fact that Jesus was resurrected, even though Paul is unwaveringly firm about that, he doesn't just brush the concerns of the Corinthians off. To the contrary, Paul provides them with evidence for why they can trust the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to cite an entire list of people who had seen Jesus after Jesus had risen. 
And Paul even notes that at one point, over 500 people at one time had actually seen the risen Lord. Now, I want people to focus on that for just a second. Paul was saying when he wrote to the Corinthians that at one point, after the Lord's resurrection, over 500 people in one single instance saw the risen Lord. Now, that's quite a large body of people. So what Paul could say to the Corinthians, and Paul noted in his discussion in the Corinthians that some of the people who had seen Jesus on that occasion had, in fact, already died. But he also said many of them were still alive. So Paul was saying, hey, look, you don't have to just trust my word for this. There are a lot of other people that you could go and check with to be sure that when I talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, you can get additional confirmation. In other words, Paul was citing evidence for the claim that he was making to the Corinthians. But that instance of Jesus appearing to over 500 people at one time isn't specifically described in any of the Gospels, is it? No, it's not. And so that leaves scholars, and us, to puzzle over when that particular instance might have occurred. Now, many scholars think that that instance, when over 500 people at one time saw Jesus alive, might have been when Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. That speculation, that potential makes sense because the Mount of Olives was pretty close to Jerusalem. And of course, remember that Jesus was crucified just outside Jerusalem. And in fact, his first appearances to the disciples were within the city of Jerusalem. Also, given the fact that the book of Acts is explicit that the apostles were present at Jesus' ascension, it's very likely that those apostles might have told many of the followers that they needed to assemble to see Jesus. Now, they might have told the followers to assemble to see Jesus, even if they didn't know that Jesus was going to ascend right at that particular time. But the main point about this particular instance of where over 500 people at one time saw Jesus alive after the resurrection The main point is that many, many years later, when some of the Corinthians expressed doubts about how anybody, including Jesus, could be resurrected from the dead, that Paul immediately resorts to a recitation of the evidence in order to assure them that they could reasonably place their faith in the resurrection of Christ. So, your point is that even Paul, who had personally seen the risen Christ and frequently testified to that fact, was willing to provide even more evidence for why people could believe in Jesus' resurrection. He gladly provides a list of additional people that the Corinthians could turn to if they needed additional confirmation. Now, of course, we're 2,000 years removed from those events, but the people who listened to Paul originally were not. If they had wanted to check with the other witnesses, they would have had the opportunity to do so. Exactly. It's often been observed that Christianity is the only major religion that makes the claim that the central figure of its belief system, in this case Christ Jesus, isn't dead. Christians make the claim that Jesus is alive, and we stake the validity of our faith on the historical claim that Jesus did die on a cross, but after three days he got up off a stone slab and walked out of a tomb through solid rock. And when you think about it, That's a pretty astounding claim. It is astounding. It would be a ridiculous assertion if it weren't true. So that is a graphic illustration of how the Christian faith must be tied to truth or else it wouldn't be a faith worthy of trust. Do you have any other examples of where the Christian faith is dependent on the truth of an objective propositional claim that at first blush seems equally astounding? Yes. 
Let's consider for a second another one of the most amazing claims that Christianity makes. Christianity claims that Jesus is not only truly a man, but also truly God. And again, this is a claim that is unique among the world's religions. Most religions see their central figure as being remarkable, extraordinary, amazing in many, many ways. But only Christianity actually claims that its central human figure, Jesus, was actually God as well as human. We believe that claim because that's what Jesus said about himself. Even Jesus, when he made that claim about himself, did not just ask the people to whom he made the claim to accept his word. Jesus offered evidence to support his claim. One example of what you're thinking about is found in John 10:36 through 38 In those verses, Jesus was rebuking some of his Jewish opponents in Jerusalem when he said, quote, Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's Son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. That is the version in the New International Version. And that's a great example. Now, there are some Bible critics today that claim that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. But that particular episode that you cited there in Jesus' life makes it clear that he did. If you go back a little bit earlier in that same chapter, in verses 31 through 33, the Apostle John gave us the background for the quote that you just read. And this is also from the New International Version. And I'm quoting here. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So see, Jesus' Jewish opponents knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And of course, in their religion, not just about any religion, that kind of a claim would be blasphemy if it weren't true. So Jesus was making an outlandish claim that he, in fact, was God. And he pointed out to his opponents that the truth of his claim was supported by his good works. Well, that's another way of saying the miracles that he did. So even Jesus himself appealed to evidence to support the truth claims that he made about himself. Jesus grounded his command to his followers that they put their trust and faith in him. He grounded that command in logic, reason, and evidence which completely repudiates any nonsense that Christians must either choose between logic or faith. And your view is that they can make wise decisions by carefully examining the evidence that is offered for any particular claim and applying logic and reason to the evidence. What else do you think is important for people to think about when it comes to the relationship between truth and faith? Well, truth must not only form the foundation of our faith, It must also set the boundaries for our faith. Our faith should be unlimited in the way that it inspires us to serve God and others and in inspiring us to want to reach the world for truth. In other words, our faith is a faith that opens doors and removes boundaries. But that does not mean that just because someone claims that one thing or another is Christian, Christian in quotes, or supported by one biblical text, 
that we should unquestioningly accept that claim. A genuine biblical faith proceeds to the boundaries that are set by Scripture, but no farther. Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about? Sure. Some people make claims about the Christian faith that fall clearly outside the bounds of reason and outside the reasonable bounds of Scripture. For instance, I've heard ministers claim that they possess miraculous powers, such as the ability to heal or foretell the future. I mean, in one case, I actually got a direct mail solicitation from a very well-known television preacher who said he had the power to raise the dead. And you don't believe that they do, but you recognize that the Bible contains records of miracles, including miracles like the ones you've mentioned. And you don't doubt the accuracy of the Bible's description of those miracles. I don't doubt for one second the Bible's descriptions of miracles occurring. But here are a few things that distinguish the Bible's reports of miracles and the powers that are sometimes claimed by some people today. Miracles, which in the Bible are usually termed signs and wonders, miracles were always used in the Bible for one purpose and one purpose only, to authenticate a messenger of God. And when you look at Scripture, you actually find out that even though the Bible has a lot of miracles in it, Those miracles are actually clustered in very specific periods of time when God was doing something special within the unfolding of the preparation for redemption, such as when Moses was leading the people out of the land of Egypt and back to the promised land. There were a lot of miracles that occurred during that period. There was another burst of miracles during the ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and that was a period of particular spiritual wickedness during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel. And of course, there was a final burst of miracles during Jesus' earthly ministry and during the formation of the early church. Well, each of these periods of these dramatic, amazing signs and wonders, God was authenticating one or more particular messengers so the people could be sure that that messenger was bringing a message to them from God himself. So what you're saying is that if someone could perform miracles today, that would, in effect, identify them as an authentic messenger of God. Essentially, that would mean that they would be capable of writing scripture because that's what the authenticated biblical messengers did. Yes. But that, for instance, doesn't stop you from praying for, say, healing for someone who is experiencing cancer or another serious illness. I absolutely pray regularly for healing for lots of people. I absolutely believe that God can and does perform remarkable healings in our day and age. I just don't believe that those healings are the result of a miraculous agency by one particular individual. I do believe that healings occur as the result of the agency of a particular individual if you're thinking about a doctor or a surgeon who administers efficacious treatment. But when the doctor or the surgeons do that, they are clearly operating, no pun intended, in the natural realm. And I'm happy to pray that those doctors receive supernatural guidance and assistance as they do so. So I perfectly admit the fact that God can and still does heal people in our day and age. It's just that I don't see that the miracle of healing has been invested in any particular person living today in a supernatural way. But you do recognize that there is an ongoing debate within the church about whether the gifts of the Spirit that are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are still in existence today. Those gifts include, according to some translations, the gifts of healing and miraculous powers. Yes. Now, whether or not the 1 Corinthian 12 gifts of the Spirit are still extant today is, in my opinion, is a legitimate source of debate within the church. 
But just because there are debates within the church about many topics does not change the underlying principle that the truth that we derive from Scripture must form the boundaries of our faith. The existence of the debate does not set aside the basic principle that our faith must be bounded by what we find in Scripture. So you're not saying that there isn't room for legitimate disagreement about many elements of the Christian faith. There are lots of areas that there have been hotly debated through the years. Whether the gifts of the Spirit are still present today, the correct view of eschatology, which just means the study of the end times. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Was the John who wrote Revelation the same John who wrote the Gospel of John? There are lots of questions within Christianity about which the truth is legitimately debated. So that means that sometimes the precise location of the boundary may not be easily established or agreed upon. But we have to return to the essential truth that not every ideal or concept that is labeled Christian is, in fact, actually Christian, or more accurately, biblical. Exactly. You know, there's been a lot of mischief down through the ages that has been advocated on the basis that it is somehow a Christian concept. And I'm not going to go into any of the specific examples of that mischief, but I think it's fairly widely known and acknowledged that there's been a lot of mischief, a lot of what I sometimes call frivolity, that has gone on because people claim that one thing or another was Christian or supported by the Bible. And that just reemphasizes the fact that we must really ensure that we have a firm understanding of the logic, reason, and evidence that supports the reliability of Scripture and the truth of the Christian faith. Because we have to make sure that we have a firm understanding of not only what is included in our faith, but what is not included in our faith. You know, it's been said that you can prove just about any proposition from Scripture so long as you're willing to extract a single text from its context. And sadly, that is true to a certain extent. And that's why it's so important that we be very sure that we not only use truth as the foundation of our faith, but we also use truth as the boundaries for our faith. That we use truth as the boundaries for the beliefs that we believe are legitimately included within the Christian faith. Well, that observation echoes the Apostle Paul's warning to Timothy, a young follower that he mentored throughout much of his ministry. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy to, quote, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth, unquote. Paul knew that throughout the long history of the church, just because a proposition was included within Scripture, that the proposition couldn't be twisted in some way that would become decidedly not scriptural. And as you say, A lot of mischief down the ages has resulted from the fact that some people, and some Christians, haven't been careful to ensure that it's the truth of Scripture that sets the boundaries for our faith. Well, once again, we're ending a show on a very sobering thought, but it is an essential one. Today, let's listen to a prayer of corporate confession, because we all have drifted from the truth of Scripture during our lives at some point, And we want to be sure that the Lord knows that the desire of our hearts really is to serve Him in spirit and in truth. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. 
Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.